Uh, good evening, everybody. Um, it's very good to see you here. Welcome to the LSE if you're not normally here, and if you are normally here, you know where you are, so, uh, but welcome to you as well. Um, I'm delighted to introduce um, our speaker this evening. Uh, Caroline Criado-Perez is a journalist and activist and probably best known, actually, for, for getting Jane Austen uh, to be the face on the, on the £10 note, campaigning um, for the Bank of England to actually get a woman put on the, uh, the banknotes, uh, something which they were quite resistant to do on the basis that the Queen was a woman. Uh, so that would do. Anyway, she successfully fought against that, but um, she's here today to talk about her, um, her book, yeah, do it, like a, do it Like a Woman, Contemporary Fe Fe uh, Feminist Activism and How You Can Change the World. And I have, I have read the book, actually, and I do recommend it thoroughly. It's a fantastic array of character, characters, uh, role models, stories um, about women leading, advocating, speaking, doing, ranging from explorers in the Antarctic to those fighting against female genital mutilation in Liberia to women Greenpeace activists scaling buildings um, to those who are uh, working in science, uh, working as journalists, um, those who are active in the Arab Spring. So there's a whole array there of stories uh, uh, for you to read. I'm also... I would thoroughly recommend that you read it because Caroline tells some of her own story there about her campaign uh, to put women on the banknotes at the Bank of England and what happens to women when they speak up uh, and how they are forced or by those, particularly through social media, to actually just shut up. And it says, as one of them says in the book, to shut, to, uh, shut up and power down and to pull off, uh, to stand back from that activism and it's a very sobering read, actually. But I think one of the favourite bits that I had was um, from a, it's a woman, actually, in, a, uh, I think it's in Liberia, actually. Yes, a journalist, May Azango. And she has a, an acronym, PUSH, which is push until something happens. And I think that's overall the, uh, the motto, as it were, that I really take from this, from this book. So, Caroline, I'm going to... Leave the stage for you. Okay. Uh, Caroline will speak, and there'll be plenty of time for questions afterwards. Okay. Okay. So, um, yeah, thank you all for coming. It's great to see so many people here interested in feminism. Um, I'm going to hope that this is the right... It is. Excellent. Okay, so... Um, I'm just going to start off to talking about how I became a feminist because with hindsight, it feels very clear to me that my route into feminism has really influenced the type of activism that I've ended up doing and also is, has hugely been the reason why I, I ended up writing the book that I've written. Um, so I, I wasn't a feminist until I was about 25. Um, I didn't know much about feminism, but what I did know about feminism I knew I didn't like. Um, I didn't need to have people telling me that I was a weak vessel that needed wrapping in cotton wool and helping to achieve, and all the sort of stereotypes that people have about feminism. I, I believed those. I thought that's what it was. Um, and I thought, I'm fine, so um, I'm not interested in this movement that makes me look like an idiot. Um, and then I, was, uh, I went to university as a mature student to study English language and literature, and I read a book by a feminist linguist called Debbie Cameron called Feminism 
and linguistic theory, which I know doesn't sound like a prime candidate for uh, feminist awakening, um, but it, it was, it was mine, um, and actually even more interestingly, interestingly, uh, it was a section on grammar, uh, so <laughs> that's just the kind of girl I am. Um, yeah, so it's a section on grammar and particularly about um, the ways in which jam- uh, language shapes the way we view the world, um, and she was talking about um, gendered pronouns and the way that we use uh, things like he uh, or man as a sort of gender-neutral term, and we're expected to not think of a man when we hear he. We're meant to think, oh, that could be he or she. Um, but of course, the reality is that studies have shown when women hear he, they think of a man. When women hear man to mean humankind, they think of a man. And that sounds really obvious, but I'd just never thought of it before. I'd just just been so used to picturing men when I didn't know the gender of the person uh, that I was reading about that it had never occurred to me as odd. But when it was pointed out to me, I just suddenly thought, you know, God, that's that's awful. And, And actually it made me really think about how my whole mental world actually was populated by men. You know, when I thought of a lawyer, I thought of a man. When I thought of a doctor, when I thought of a journalist, when I thought of a politician, anyone who occupied any sort of space in public life, anyone who seemed to be doing anything that I might want to do was a man. And uh, having, when I later sort of started to really become a feminist, I started to reflect on whether that might not have been a little bit why I was so anti-feminism and so keen to reject feminism, so keen to reject any movement that marked me out as a woman, because as far as I could see, anyone who was doing anything interesting in life was male. So I'd rather be one of the guys than align myself with, you know, the second sex. Um, so, as a result of that, that's really, I think, why the things that have tended to spark off my interest and, and, and get me going have been things about, around about female representation. Um, so, the first thing that I ended up doing uh, was to co-found an organisation called The Women's Room, which is a database of female experts for the media. Um, currently, 80% of experts in the media are male. Um, and the reason we set up the database was for, because of two... Well, the immediate catalyst was two days in a row. Uh, the Today programme had an all-male panel talking about women's bodies. So, the first day, there were some lovely men talking about teenage girls and their contraception. And one of the lovely men men was the headmaster of Wellington College, um, and he didn't really seem to know what he was talking about. Why would he? Um, And then the next day was about women's experiences of breast cancer. So it wasn't just breast cancer. It was actually women's experiences of it, subjective experiences. And they were reduced to asking this male breast cancer expert, so if you were a woman, would you take this test? Um, Baffling. Anyway, so that was really a red rag to a bull. We managed to find 50 female breast cancer experts on Twitter within about an hour. Um, And we set up this this organisation, which is still going, and all the women in the room should join it. Men, sorry, but you're doing okay. Um, uh, So, yeah, that was the first thing that that I did. And and, uh, the next thing that I did, again, was focusing on female representation. I read um, in the newspaper that... uh, Elizabeth Fry, who was on the £5 note, was going to be replaced with Winston Churchill, which was going to leave our banknotes as entirely male, which would send out essentially the message that the only people who've done anything worth celebrating in British history are men, um, which clearly isn't true. Um, so it just felt like a really unnecessary and, and stupid decision, really. And to be honest, when I, when I started the campaign... I thought it was such an obvious point. I thought it was so stupid that I kind of expected them just to cave immediately and say, you know, fair enough, you got us. This was, this was a bad move. Um, but amazingly, they didn't. They really, really dug their heels in. They really pushed back. Um, 
They were incredibly patronising. Um, and, and basically just stonewalled and said no. We tried to um, get a, a legal campaign going, and when we were exchanging legal letters, the letters were just totally misrepresenting what we were arguing. They were not answering questions, direct questions we were putting to them. They were just being very weaselly, essentially. But anyway, eventually, after three months, they did cave, and they announced that, uh, that Jane Austen was going to be on a banknote from 2017, 2016, something like that. Um, which was great, but um, for me, what was actually the most important thing was uh, their recognition that their selection procedure had, in fact, been sexist. So they'd always touted the selection procedure as objective. Um, and the reason I'm bringing this up is because it's, uh, it's something that I'm going to talk about a little bit later, but I think it's very important to bear in mind the difference between objective and subjective when we're talking about value judgments. Um, and the value judgments that they had placed as objective criteria on who deserves to be on a banknote were things like must have good artwork already in existence, must have good name recognition. Those things are already going to make it much more likely that it's a man. They're also going to make it much more likely that um, it's a white person. Um, so given you know, racism and sexism in our, in our history, these kinds of supposedly objective criteria that don't automatically look like they're sexist can in fact be sexist. And they agreed and they've changed their selection criteria and that was a bigger win for me. Um, but anyway... Uh, that was, I mean, that was, that was great, but as, uh, as Julia said, um, some men were not very happy about that win, um, and they decided to tell me through the medium of rape threats. Um, so I'm just going to read out some of the rape and death threats that I got now. Um, I apologise in advance, they're very graphic and violent, but I think it's incredi- incredibly important that people know what we're actually talking about, because the media doesn't report it. You know, when I went on to talk about it on the radio, on TV, I wasn't allowed to say what had been said to me. Um, no newspaper will print it. Um, so it ended up with it sort of looking like I was sort of complaining about people saying that I you know, hadn't done my hair properly, which, which in fact they, they did do. There was a guy who got in touch with me after, after I was interviewed on Sky News complaining that um, my hair wasn't looking very nice and couldn't I have made a bit more of an effort. Uh, <laughs> So, yeah, anyway, so, rape threats. Uh, Put both your hands on my cock and stroke it till I come on your eyeballs. Do as I fucking say or I'll slit your throat. Go on your knees and suck my dick. I will teach you to learn your place as a woman in this world. Then you'll eat my cum. I will rape you, fucking pathetic slut. First we will mutilate your genitals with scissors, then set your house on fire while you beg to die tonight, 11pm. Women that talk too much need to get raped. I'm going to pistol whip you over and over until you lose consciousness while your children watch and then burn your flesh. You'll never get me. You'll only feel my cock when it's raping you, slut. You are dead and gone tonight, cunt. Kiss your pussy goodbye as we break it irreparably. Shut your whole mouth or I'll shut it for you and choke it with my dick. Um, I mean, I think it's very clear that those are quite shocking and scary messages to receive. I was certainly very scared when I got them. You know, I didn't know who these people were. I didn't know where they were. And it's quite difficult to sort of try and be objective and sort of rational about things when you're getting threats every single minute and people are posting your address all over the internet um, and making it incredibly clear that they're trying to hunt you down and find you. Um, But when I sort of had a bit of distance from it, um, well, partly that and partly also I read... um, Intercourse by Andrea Dworkin, and there was something that she said in the introduction that really, really stuck with me and made me think, yes, that's, that's exactly it, that's how I felt. Um, she says, 
Men often react to women's words, speaking and writing, as if they were acts of violence. Sometimes men react to women's words with violence. So we lower our voices. Women whisper. Women apologise. Women shut up. Women trivialise what we know. Women shrink. Women pull back. Most women have experienced enough dominance from men, control, violence, insult, contempt, that no threat seems empty. And... That was just, I mean, that was an amazing thing to read. It felt like a real validation of how, how scared I'd felt, especially given so many people have been telling me to just sort of, you know, ironically man up. Um, but what it, what it was that, that it made me reflect on was actually, yes, some of the things that I was threatened with were things that had already, in fact, been done to me uh, without my consent by men. Um, some things had been done to friends of mine. Some things were things that I'd read about in newspapers to other people. Um, so... These weren't empty threats. These were very, very real things to the extent that I had experienced them. Um, and I think that made it much harder for me just to sort of brush it off and say, well, you know, it's probably just some loser in his bedroom. Um, anyway, so... Uh, what I, but what I uh, particularly wanted to, to focus on in the, in the threats, which was something that I sort of, again, after I had a little bit of time to think about it, that I, I was able to sort of think about what, this, what these threats meant, you know, what, what is the message that these men are trying to send me. Um, and I felt that, that this tweet really summed it up. Women that talk too much need to get raped. It was a, a really, really clear exposition of the way in which the sexual violence was directed at shutting me up. And there was a clear theme in loads of the threats that I got sent, focusing on my neck, focusing on my throat, on my mouth, on my tongue. Um, and uh, it, it, was, it was just very, very clearly, violently telling me that I needed to shut up. And the reason that I, I sort of bring this out is because I think a lot of people, when they hear about what happened to me, when they hear about what's happened to other women on the internet, they think it's some kind of weird, new, horrible internet pheno phenomenon that's just something to do with the online world, and there's something about internet anonymity or uh, the, the fact that you can't see the person you're talking to, that that's what brings this out. But actually, I think it's very important to put this in the historical context of women having been historically threatened with violence in order to shut them up. Um, and you can see it in, in uh, many, many places in history. Um, I'm going to come on to this in a second, um, but I just want to start off with Mary Beard, because I feel that if you can get Mary Beard to agree with you in a speech, you're probably going to... People are going to agree with you, frankly. Um, so she's talking about um, the way in which, in antiquity, uh, having a public voice was the way masculinity was defined. So she quotes this section from the Odyssey where Telemachus sends his mother to her room, informing her that speech will be the business of men, all men, and of me most of all, for mine is the power in this household. Um, and she goes on to say that this actually is a repeated um, uh, sort of uh, idea, a repeated theme in Greco-Roman literature, um, and that public speaking and oratory were not merely things that ancient women didn't do, they were exclusive practices and skills that defined masculinity as a gender. Public speech was a, if not the, defining attribute of maleness. So you've got that in antiquity. Then we move forward to the 1500s. Um, this is a scold. Uh, a scold was a woman who was defined as a nag or a gossip. So again, you can see it's all around women speaking out of turn. Um, and they would have to wear a, a scold's bridle. So these are some examples of scold's bridles. And as you can see, it's a metal uh, mask that was put on a woman's face. It would have a tongue clamp um, that would prevent her tongue from moving so that if she, so she couldn't speak. Sometimes there would be a, um, a spike 
so that if she did try and speak, her tongue would be lacerated. And as you can see, this one here had a little bell on it, because what would happen is that they would parade these women who spoke too much around the town to show, like, this is what happens when, uh, when women speak up. And in a way, you know, it's sort of... I don't know if any of you have read a great new book by John Ronson talking about public shaming, and he sort of talks about how this kind of mobbing on the internet has become the new form of the town square where historically people were shamed. Um, and, and that's really, I feel, what, what's happening to women. Um, this is a not particularly subtle uh, evocation of the theme. This is an anti-suffragette poster. Um, so, I mean, this is, yeah, as I said, not very subtle. This is some men saying, if you want, if you carry on agitating for your right to vote, we're going to nail your tongue to a table. I just think it's interesting, particularly because, again, it's this focus on the woman's mouth, on her tongue. Um, so, base, basing your sort of analysis of what's happening to women online... Um, in this historical context, it seems very clear that it's about a fear of women's voices. But where does this fear come from? Um, and my, my theory is in huge part why I ended up writing this book and, and also why I've ended up focusing on the representation of women in much of my activism. And the reason is that I think that the only way to explain how someone could possibly think that it's a reasonable reaction to a woman wanting, let's face it, at the end of the day, just a woman's face on a piece of paper, to think that a reasonable response to that is a deluge of rape and death threats suggests a very, very deep fear, and I would suggest to the extent of having an existential crisis. And if you look at what Mary Beard was saying about how historically public speech has defined masculinity, how you are a man if you occupy the public space, you are a man if you occupy a public voice, then when you have women coming in and doing that, what does it mean for me as a man? Why, how, what, what am I if suddenly, suddenly these women are doing that? Um, so as a result of that, it seems to me very, very clearly there is one answer to deal with this, and that is to make it not odd and to make it not strange to have women speaking in public. Um, and obviously the way to do that is to increase female representation. Um, so I'd just like to pause for a moment to have a look at how we're doing on female representation at the moment. So this is Westminster. Um, there are just under five men for every woman in Westminster. Um, that's actually increased a little bit uh, in, since the, 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 whatever it was, the day my book came out, 7th of May, election day, there we go, uh, when it became 29% uh, women, but obviously it's still massively underrepresented, and we are, of course, 50% of the population, and Westminster is meant to be the representative body, so you would think that we'd want to have it representative of society as a whole. Um, out of 107 High Court judges, only 20 are women. Um, and a recent Council of Europe report came out showing, showing that only 25% of judges are women. Um, and we came third last in Europe on that. Key stage two of the national history curriculum has no women in it whatsoever. Women simply do not exist. Um, and in key stage three, uh, we do have some women, four of them, and they're all lumped together under the changing role of women. So men get to sort of be part of the huge, wide sweep of history, and women get to be doing women's things. Um, out of 13 editors of a national daily newspaper, uh, only two are women. One of them is very recent. It's Kath Viner at The Guardian, which is great. She's also the first, certainly in a long time, the first state school educated uh, editor. Um, but this is, actually, this is actually a decrease, in fact, from, from what it used to be. Um, so, and I think it's important to notice when things go backwards as well as when they go forwards, because we have this idea that things are always gradually getting better. Um, but the reality is there's lots of places where as soon as we take our eye off the ball, things decrease. Um, so uh, women don't make the front pages either. 
Um, slightly untrue, we do make these uh, pictures on the front pages. Uh, we're doing actually very, very well in that regard. Uh, we make 80% of pictures that are just there to illustrate that aren't considered relevant to a lead news story. Um, but uh, men, uh, the lead stories have an 84% chance of being about men. Just want to pause on that for a second. 84% of lead stories are about men. Women, I'm sorry to be a broken record, are 50% of the population. Um, if there's an expert quoted, as I said, there's an 80% chance he'll be a man, and 78% of news stories are written by men. Now, when I sort of talk about this, people often say, well, we live in a sexist society, you have to expect that the news media that represents a sexist society will itself be sexist, like women aren't really doing anything at the moment, so you can't expect them to be reported on. Um, and uh, unfortunately for people who make that argument, it's not actually true. So the media represents it as worse than it actually is. Um, beyond that, of course, I think we need to go back to the subjective versus objective idea. And the idea that it's somehow reasonable that the stories that we consider to be interesting, the stories that we consider to be the stories that we must know about, just happen to all be about one sex, um, about 80% about one sex, is a really, really odd idea when you sit down and think about it. Why is it that we accept that? Why is it that we accept that what's happening to 50% of the population just isn't interesting? Um, so, uh, actually, there's a, there's a quite uh, gruesome, I think, example of how that, that plays out in real life, which is... Um, so, we all know about the, uh, you know, the horrific beheadings that took place last summer. Um, they were plastered all over the front pages. You couldn't miss them. Um, and I'm not saying they shouldn't have been reported on. They should have been reported on. It was, it was a horrific global event. However, three women were beheaded in London alone last year between April and September. Um, most people haven't even heard that, no, don't even know these beheadings took place. We don't know the names of these women. We don't know anything about them. We don't know what they look like. Um, and, you know, as I said, I'm not saying that the other beheadings shouldn't have been reported on, but I think it's worth reflecting on why we know about certain these beheadings and we don't know about ones that took place in our capital city, three of them. Um, that's just something I want to leave you to, to ponder on for a bit. Um, but anyway, as I said, the, the news media is representing it as worse than it actually is. So uh, women only make up one out of ten lead uh, news subjects of stories, of political news stories in the UK. Um, so that's actually representing Westminster as worse than it actually is. On global news stories that affect women disproportionately more than men, for example, on HIV and AIDS, women made up only 42% of news subjects. Um, and bafflingly, this goes down to 30% when the story is about uh, female electoral candidates. So when the story is about women, women only make up 30% of the subject. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, I think that we've got to give them credit. Uh, anyway, um, to go back to women being represented, uh, overrepresented in, in, uh, in the way that they look, uh, female subjects of global news stories are more likely to appear in photographs accompanying articles than men, and they're also more likely to appear in full body shots, whereas men are more likely to be head and shoulders. Um, and the, the report also says that they're more likely to be in various states of undress. That's the women, not the men, by the way. Um, so, I mean, when we talk about the way in which women are presented in the news media as being fodder for, um, for the male gaze, for want of a better term, um, we often talk about the way that this impacts on, on women's self-confidence, and it makes women feel like the only thing that matters is whether they are attractive, and obviously that is a huge part of it. Um, but there are other actual, there are other um, effects as well. 
and these are tangible effects. So, for example, there was a study in the US last year that looked at how uh, the way female politicians were reported on, um, what effect it had on their poll ratings. And they found that just mentioning the appearance of a female politician, and it could be positive, negative, or neutral, so it could be something as basic as she was wearing a blue dress, that um, negatively impacted on her poll ratings, and it made voters less likely to think she was experienced, strong, effective, qualified, and confident. Um, I would suggest that what's going on there is this sort of because women are the sex that are expected to be decorative and are expected to look pretty, and that's linked to the way in which women are generally belittled for uh, being trivial, particularly if they dare to care how they look in a world that tells them the only thing that matters is the way that they look, um, is that what's going on here is that voters are being reminded, oh, oh, this is a woman, right, so she's she's that sex that only cares about what they look like and probably can't do maths and... Yeah, probably shouldn't be running the country, so I probably won't vote for her. Um, that's just a hunch. Anyway, to, to carry on with my representation stats, in Hollywood films, women make up only 28% of speaking roles. Okay, so we've gone through the news media and how bad that is, and I have explained why there is no argument against it. But really, there is no argument against women's stories not being told in fictional representations of humanity. Um, and yet that's, that's what's going on. We're only 28% of speaking roles. Our stories aren't considered worth, uh, worth box office um, money. Um, even more bafflingly, we're only 17% of crowd scenes. So even when we're just in the background, <laughs> women only make up 17% of humanity. Um, yeah, and the percentages here haven't changed for 16 years. So again, you know, things don't necessarily always get better. Um, on that 17% stat, what I think is very interesting about that, and I'm not going to make any sort of grand claims about causality here, I just think it's an interesting coincidence. There's another study um, that was mentioned by Gina Davis, um, who uh, set up the Gina Davis Institute uh, looking at media representation, where um, you know, she's been uh, behind all these studies on Hollywood films and how women are represented. Anyway, she was talking about this study that was done on men's perceptions of how many women were in a room when there was a mixed gender group. And what they found was that when uh, it was 17% women in the mixed gender group, men thought it was 50-50. And when it was 33% women, men thought women were in the majority. Um, So... Yeah, I think that the the 17% repetitive thing there is quite interesting. But, I mean, I think also it it kind of explains something that I'd been struggling to understand. When I was running the banknotes campaign, I had this very irate man get in touch with me to say, but women are everywhere now, you know, what's your problem? And I sort of wonder if that's why, you know, because he thought that maybe some places it was like 33%, and that's, you know, women everywhere. Um, That's, again, just a hunch. Um, So anyway, what's going on here? Why, when women make up 51% of the population, do we represent that world as 70 to 80% male? Um, I have a theory on this, and it's called male default. And I just want to illustrate it to you uh, with reference to this cartoon and some other things, some other slides, you lucky people. So you can see here, it's fairly self-explanatory what's going on. Uh, There there are two men uh, in the... Oh, God, I can't... Is that left for you? 
two men and that one, uh, wow, you suck at math. And then the other one, there's a man saying to a woman, wow, girls suck at, suck, suck, uh, suck at math. So you can see what's going on here. It's the idea that men get to be individuals um, and rep- as, because they sort of get to represent humanity so they can be you know, all the different types of person under the sun, whereas women come from planet woman um, and we're all the same and we all think the same and we're all bad at maths. Um, so... I mean, that's, I mean, I like that cartoon. It's a good cartoon. But the reason I've chosen it is actually to criticise it and call it sexist. Uh, because what I, I mean, it's not, it's like, it's a good cartoon. But what I think is very interesting about it is that in a cartoon that is criticising the idea of sexism and that's criticising the idea that uh, men don't have to be this weird non-human, you know, like, woman thing where we're all the same, is that it falls into this trope of male default. So if you look at the stick figures, what's the stick figure that has had something added to it in order to make it a woman? Um, and this is something that you see again and again. And now, you know, once I started noticing it, I did start noticing it everywhere, um, that men are the default and women are just this weird added extra that we modify. We're sort of modified men. Um, so let's see some other examples of this. Uh, the Lego time teacher minifigure watch and clock. The Lego time teacher girl minifigure watch and clock. Actually, today I saw, I saw another example. Um, it was building sets, girls' building sets. So it's nice that girls get building sets. You know, we didn't about five years ago, but still, they're girls' building sets. Um, this is interesting. Awesome girl, awesome kid. Uh, yeah. That's pretty self-explanatory. <laughs> I, I really would like to know what, you know what was going through their heads. Anyway, this one actually is one of my favourite. You know, for all these years, we were using big pens. We thought that they were gender-neutral big pens, and it turned out they were men's big pens. And so they very kindly made us girl pens because we hadn't been able to use the other pens. Um, but what you'll notice is that they haven't renamed the other pens, you know, big for men and made them blue and manly and uh, whatever else they might do. Um, so this is Kate Shepherd. Um, I mean, it's not Kate Shepherd; it's a traffic light. But uh, it's meant to be Kate Shepherd. Um, and the reason I include this is because when I came across the story, it made me realise, oh my god, here's another example of male default that I hadn't noticed, just in the way that I hadn't noticed that when I heard he, I was thinking of a man. Um, You know, that bloody little green man. He's a green man! (laughs) So, um, yeah, I just, I, I kind of include that to sort of remind myself more than anything that even someone like me, who is so clearly and unhealthily obsessed with male default, still falls into this trap of not recognising when you're just acting like male is the default and women is the sort of modified extra. Anyway, so why does this matter? Um, well, it matters because it adds up to a world where women are not seen as 50% of the population, but as an, an anomaly and a deviation from, I guess, what you would think of as standard humanity, which is represented by men. And uh, this can actually have very serious consequences. So, um, can I do audience t- participation? Oh, no, I can't because there's no because podca- of the podcast. Oh, so, we can probably manage. We'll survive. Uh, can anyone tell me what... Actually, do you know what? I'm not sure if I don't want to do this because you'll probably know the answer and then you'll ruin it. <laughs> <laughs> You're like clever LSE You're people. Cool. Okay, cool. go on, but don't ruin it for me. If you know the answer, don't answer it. <laughs> <laughs> no problems with the podcast then. <laughs> Um, who can tell me what the symptoms are of a heart attack? Someone, I, I've just made it impossible for you to answer this question. <laughs> Anyone? Pain in your arm. Pain in your arm. 
Pain in your chest. Very good. Um, Thank you for getting the answer wrong. No, you keep quiet. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, pain in your arm, pain in your chest. That is what we think of as the traditional symptoms of a heart attack. And, in fact, they are the traditional symptoms and the correct symptoms of a heart attack if you're talking about men. Uh, When it comes to women, it feels much more like indigestion. Was that what you were about to say? Oh, okay. Well, I don't know what you've been reading. (laughs) Um, Anyway, so it feels more like indigestion for women. And uh, this isn't just a a matter of lay people not recognising this. There's documented evidence of doctors still misdiagnosing women who present with with, uh, having had heart attacks. um, And they get diagnosed as having pulled muscles or indigestion, which, as you can imagine, is not very good and potentially fatal. Um, So that's one example of the way in which this idea that what goes for men goes for humanity uh, can really negatively affect women. Um, This has also been a problem with um, medicinal drugs. Um, So uh, until very recently, uh, they really haven't made any effort whatsoever to test drugs on on women. They've mainly tested them in men. And this has meant that women have experienced more side effects and less um, beneficial treatment. Um, And one of the ways this played out was last year the FDA had to tell women to cut the dosage of a popular sleeping pill called Ambien, I think, in half because they metabolised the active ingredient twice as slowly. And I don't know about you, but 50% seems to me like quite a large margin of error. Um, One of the reasons, actually, that they haven't um, traditionally uh, tested drugs on women is because women's bodies have been thought to be too hormonal um, and sort of fluctuate too much, because, you know, women are a bit like that. Um, And so they they haven't been testing them on on women. Ironically, actually, um, men's bodies fluctuate more than women's bodies, uh, but, you know... Let's not let facts get in the way of some nice old prejudice. But anyway, so they haven't been doing, doing that on, on women. And, and the, the odd thing that I find, beyond the fact that actually men's, men have testosterone cycles as well, is that, um, if, I mean, just think, if we were saying to, to, to the other 50% of the population, we're not going to test things on you because your body's too weird. Don't you think that we might think that there was something wrong with the test rather than with men's bodies. I don't know. This is just a, a mad idea of mine. Um, so that's, that's another example. Another example, actually, again, with heart attacks. Heart disease, I think, is the number one killer of women in the U.S. They've just produced this revolutionary new pacemaker um, that is ineffective for all but 20% of women. Um, and, again, I wonder whether it would be called a revolutionary new pacemaker if it were effective in all but 20% uh, of men, and I come to the conclusion, conclusion that it would probably be chucked out and they would be sent back to their desks and told, you're rubbish, you know, do it again. Um, anyway, so that's medicine. Um, I just want to give you one other exam- uh, another example from, uh, I guess, the more social end of the scale. Um, so the 1951 Convention on Refugees, UN Convention on Re- Refugees, um, was a document that was drawn up with the best of intentions. And it's a beautiful document intended to say, you know, if you're suffering, if you're being persecuted, come, we will provide you with asylum. Um, And inevitably, it wasn't set out to discriminate against people. The whole point was that anyone could come, anyone could claim asylum, and we would help them. Um, Unfortunately, because it was drawn up again with this idea that what goes for men goes for everyone else... um, is that women have traditionally found it much, much harder to claim asylum than men. So this has happened in a number of ways. Um, For a start, uh, 
it, the, when you want to claim asylum, you can't just say I'm being persecuted. You have to fit into a number of very specific reasons. So there are things like um, social group, political beliefs, religion, sexuality, all of which are things for which women can be persecuted. But you can't claim that you're being persecuted because of your gender. And actually, when you speak to female asylum seekers, the number one reason they give for why they're being persecuted is because I'm a woman. Um, you know, that's why they're having to flee from FGM, from domestic violence, uh, from forced marriage, uh, from being beaten for trying to access education. All these things are because they're women. Um, and they have to make very, very complicated legal arguments in order to be able to fit their female experience into this male box that we've created for them. Um, there, are other, there are other issues that, again, you wouldn't necessarily immediately recognise as being discriminatory against women, but end up being that way. So you have to have left the country from which you're fleeing before you can claim asylum. And immediately that's much harder for women to be able to do. Uh, it's much harder for women to travel legally because they're less likely to be working, they're less likely to have money, they're less likely, therefore, to be able to get a visa. Um, often they'll be coming from countries where it's illegal or certainly frowned upon for them to travel on their own. Um, it might be their guardian from whom they're trying to flee. Um, so I think that's just... I think the, the UN Convention is a very, very clear example of the way in which we can think something is objective and actually it ends up treating women pretty badly. Um, and I just want to give you an example of how this plays out in reality by talking about one of the women I interviewed for my book called Nausea Atmar. She's an amazing woman. Uh, and she was one of the, she was one of the female um, members of parliament who came in after the, the Taliban got kicked out. And uh, she um, passed a whole load of laws uh, against violence against women, um, started to really try and change things for women in, in Afghanistan. And uh, she met this man while she was in her first term in office um, and got married to him. And he said that he was very uh, supportive of her. He thought it was great being married to this intelligent, educated, empowered, independent woman. Um, and so that all seemed great. Uh, unfortunately, she then lost her seat in the, in the, for the second term as a result of corruption. And at that point, she became a prisoner in her own home. Uh, her husband beat her. He raped her. Eventually, when he held a knife up to her throat, she realized that she had to try and leave. Um, her family told her that uh, they would abandon her if she divorced him because she would bring shame on the family. Um, he also threatened to kill her if she left. Um, she managed to escape to a refuge, um, and to give you an idea of what that means, um, a minister uh, in, in Afghanistan recently referred to them as brothels. You know, these aren't seen as places of refuge for women. They're not, uh, they're not safe places. They're seen as where women of ill repute go. Um, but it was the only place she had to go. So she went there. Um, and when she was there, she went to the British embassy and she asked them to help her. And they said, we can't help you uh, because if we were to help you, it would open the floodgates. Um, and that's, too, that's true on two points. One, it would open the floodgates in that there are so many women who are being abused uh, by people in their own home, uh, usually their partners. Um, but also it's true on the, the point that it, they would have to alter the UN Convention in order to do that. And they don't want to alter the UN Convention to make gender a reason for which you can claim asylum because it's actually very convenient to have this legal uh, block on all these women who are being badly treated. Um, and one of the reasons I think it's very uh, important to, to reflect on someone like Nausea is that this is not a woman 
without power. You know, she's educated. She was running the country, you know. She was travelling around the world representing her country. Um, And she's been reduced to having to beg for help um, and not being granted it. Um, However, to sort of look vaguely on the bright side... um, she, uh, she hasn't given up and she's still fighting and she's still trying and she um, fully intends, once she manages to get granted asylum somewhere, to carry on her work fighting on behalf of women. So she's a really incredible and inspiring story, I think. Um, just to lighten the mood a bit, um, I really like this cartoon. <laughs> um, but it has an important point, uh, which is basically that it's all a matter of perspective, you know, we can see what's going on in this cartoon. She's the only one that can see that they're a sexist organisation because she's the only one who's affected by it. Um, and uh, what you can see, I think, in, in how this plays out in, in terms of governments, I mean, if you were to compare the way that our government has been savagely cutting women's services, for example, uh, with what Nausea was trying to do when she was in power, trying to introduce violence against women... Um, uh, legislation, you know, you can see where different uh, different perspectives feed into different different uh, priorities. Um, so, women's services have been cut by something about like about forty seven percent by this point, um, and it's and it's far more for for black and minority ethnic women. Um, but what any women's services worker could tell the government, and in fact have told the government, is that in a time of austerity, demand rises. So this has led to a situation uh, last year, 180 women and I think 143 of their children were turned away um, on a single day from women's aid refuges because there was no room for them. Um, And I don't know about you, but I feel that this is supposed to be a civilised country. There shouldn't be any woman who has to face the decision of either being destitute or going back to an abusive partner simply because we don't think it's important enough to fund uh, women's services to provide enough spaces for these women. Uh, You know, we're meant to be a sort of advanced democratic country. And I would strongly suggest that uh, it might have a little bit to do with the fact, not that the men in in government are necessarily evil, but that they might have different priorities. Um, And also, you've got to think about how much the media affects politics and affects policies. Um, And therefore, if the media is not really uh, reporting on things like 180 women being turned away in a single day, then there's, there's again, less of that pressure on government to to act on it. Um, A very interesting comparison... I think it's a very interesting comparison... Um, to how this kind of politics versus media thing works is um, the, the... Now, let me try and get this right. It was a tax on, um, that was only going to affect something like the top 1% of earners uh, versus the bedroom tax. Um, and if you look at the acres of media courage and coverage and the hours that were spent talking about this tax that wasn't really going to affect many people but was going to affect hugely you know, the people who are earning that much money working in the media versus the bedroom tax, um, which was going to affect way more of the population proportionately but was going to affect far fewer of the people working in the media. Um, and the tax that was being proposed didn't get passed um, and the bedroom tax is still, in, uh, is still policy. Um, that sounds really sort of vague, but I did write it in the book, so if you're interested to find out what the hell it is I'm talking about, buy my book. Um, so that wasn't on purpose. I genuinely did forget. Uh, <laughs> uh, 
Anyway, so um, I'm, I'm going to try and wrap it up now, I think, because I think, feel like I've been talking for ages. Have I been talking for ages? It's about the right time. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so basically what I tried to do with this book is to try and challenge this idea that women's stories aren't important, that women's stories aren't interesting, that there are no women in public life doing amazing things. Um, and that's really for two reasons. Uh, one, because there is so much research that has... Uh, that has been done on the impact of role models on women and how they can tangibly affect what women can achieve. So just to give a couple of examples, um, as, I, as I mentioned before, girls suck at maths, um, supposedly. Because this is such a strong t- stereotype, it creates this thing called stereotype threat. So you, girls, women or girls or whoever it is that's taking the test, um, all, you, all they have to do is tick a box to declare their gender for them to do worse on that maths test because it reminds them that they're women and women are bad at maths. And so then they're expending part of their energy trying to think, I mustn't you know, conform to the stereotype rather than just focusing on the maths test. Um, however, they've also done tests on how role models can, can change this. So they, they had uh, two, two groups uh, given a maths test. One was given a maths test by a woman presented as competent in maths, and one was given a maths test by a woman presented as incompetent in maths. Um, and the women in the first group massively outperformed the women in the second group, and they also outperformed the men in the group. Um, similarly, uh, just having a single female candidate for Senate, this is a US study, raised uh, increased women's ability to name any senator from 51% to 79%. Again, that took them above the figure for men. Um, and again, politics is an area that we sort of think women aren't that interested in it. Um, and it just shows how just having one woman there suddenly massively increases women's engagement. Um, so there's that aspect of it. But to, to go back to this existential crisis of, that, that men are having that I was talking talking about at the beginning, hashtag not all men, um, is, is that I think it's really important for feminism to look at masculinity and femininity and what we define as man and what we define as woman. And while we continue to define man as dominant and aggressive and leading and in charge, um, we're going to carry on having this problem because men are cont- going to continue feeling deeply threatened to their very male soul uh, by simply having a woman speaking up and, and asking for increased representation of other women or just speaking up at all, in fact. I think a very interesting um, example of how this, you don't know, you don't have to be a feminist to get rape threats um, is Sue Perkins. I don't know if you heard about this. She, uh, there was a rumour that she was going to replace Jeremy Clarkson on Top Gear and uh, she got loads of rape and death threats as a result. And I just, you know, you can't see a clearer example, I think, of this is a male domain, you know, don't come in here. Um, so, you know, I think it's really important to, to remember that it's, it's not just about the arguments that women make. It's literally just any incursion to a male space. And as I said, the only way to explain that, really, I think, unless you think that men are just mad, um, which is, you know, uh, a conclusion that some people have drawn, I don't subscribe to it, uh, is, is that there's, there's some deep fear going on here. So, it, to conclude, increase female representation by my book. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you.
Okay, everybody, we need, do now have um, time for questions. I need to remind you that we are, uh, we are being recorded. There is a podcast uh, which, which is going out. There's also a webcast which is going out. Um, so you may just want to bear that in mind. If you could also, therefore, you also use the mics. Okay, so we've got two people here in red uh, who've got microphones, so I will be asking you if you can use the mic when you're asking a question because then it uh, enables the, uh, the podcast to be recorded as well. Um, and after the lecture, there is going to be an opportunity for you to, to, to purchase the book, um, and Caroline will be very kindly here for signing. I've got my signed already, okay? I'm special. Okay, I've got special privileges. Um, I'm going to take a few questions. I'm going to group some questions together, two or three questions together, and then um, give them to Caroline to answer. In order so we can get as many people who want to ask questions in as possible, if I could ask you to keep your questions um, relatively brief, um, because that just then gives more opportunity for more people, uh, that would be great. Okay, so if I could have the first set of people indicating they want to ask a question. Okay, lady in burgundy there, and then lady in green. Sorry, we'll have to wear a bright colour. Uh, stripy, stripy top, and then scarf. That will do for the moment. Okay, so we'll start off with burgundy, and then we'll go to green. Thank you. Thank you, Caroline, for Say your... your name if you want to. You don't have to be Burgundy, sorry. <laughs> OK. Uh, my name's Lorna. Um, I was a student at the Gender Institute here last year. Um, thank you for your very interesting talk, Caroline, and really appreciate you taking the time to come and talk to all of us here. Um, my question is, I really appreciate what you're saying about representation and the importance of that, but at what stage do you think there's a limit where you're asking for representation as part of a system that exists and has been built by one gender to this point? And at what point do you need to actually come up with some new systems in order to actually see equality? Mm-hmm. Okay, fair enough, thank you. Yes, Lady in Green, thank you. Uh, hi. Um, I guess the first thing, that, not the first thing, but at the end of the talk, I was thinking of the saying we have in Spanish, which is... Uh, juntos pero no revueltos and it means like together but not mixed and I guess I I thought this would sound more eloquent but um, (laughs) basically things like having for example tests for women would then open the door to having sort of medicines that are targeted to women and then things like that would in fact create I guess a divide for products that you know are for women's bodies and products that are for men's bodies and so on and so forth Um, so it would still create that sort of separation between female and male. How would those those gaps be bridged when it comes to things that are really just different because women need them to be different, etc.? Thank you. Okay. My name's Alison. I work at the University of Kent. I was really quite shocked by what you said about the attacks you had on social media. And I wondered if you could reflect on how we could use social media as a positive platform to think about um, advancing some of the causes that you've been discussing without engendering the, the hatred and the visceral misogyny that you described earlier. Okay. Okay. Yeah, my question's kind of related to that. I was just wondering, when you started to get all these threats, was there ever a time that you regretted what you'd done, or did you feel like this was vindication of what you were doing? Mm. Okay. Okay. Um, well, I'll start with the final ones because they, they were quite similar. So um, did I regret what I'd done? I mean, it was probably a mixture of the two. You know, I didn't like getting rape and death threats. It was pretty horrific, um, and it affected me really badly. Uh, and so I, can't, I don't think I can ever say that I regretted what I did because it did feel like this just showed how important it was. Um, and also I'm quite bloody-minded, so the idea of 
being made to regret what I'd done by a bunch of sexist wankers just goes against my philosophy. Um, so, yeah, that's that, it's sort of two minds thing. It has inevitably made me more cautious um, about what I say and what I do. Um, there are days where I just don't feel like uh, getting a load of rape threats, so I don't speak up. Um, and I think that that is, that is a theme for many of the women that I speak to. Um, and so for that reason, I think it's more important than ever that loads of women, that all women are, are speaking up, because it's very important to be able to take up the slack from when other women are feeling the brunt of the misogyny a, uh, a bit too much that particular day. Um, about social media, you know, I think social media can be a force for incredible good. I think it's been a huge... Um, enabler of this new wave of feminism that we're seeing. Um, and certainly I wouldn't have been able to do any of the uh, activism that I've done without social media. Um, and there are loads of women who wouldn't have been able to, to achieve, you know, changes, tangible changes that they've achieved for the betterment of women. Um, I don't think at the moment there is a way to do it without getting rape and death threats. That's just become part of activism for women in a very sad way. Um, so I think... You know, that's, that's kind of what the argument I was trying to make in, in the talk, is that I think that the only way of achieving that is to just carry on doing it, and unfortunately we're just going to have to be really bloody tough. Um, and women who came before us have been really bloody tough. Um, and we're going to have to stop being really bloody tough when sexism no longer exists, essentially. So, um, to, yeah, so the, do you mean sort of medical tests you're talking about? You're worried about medical tests? Well, oh. Sorry. Product differentiation was well, it appropriate? I, I, it's not working. It's working. Oh, okay. <laughs> I just I don't just mean medical tests, but obviously, this is always the argument I get from men when it's like, oh, women are different because biology. But um, I mean, like you said, when you're talking about the ambient, it, women, a lot of women react to it differently, and it would be as good to have women also being used as test subjects for medicine because you know, then it would see how, how women's bodies react to certain things. But at the same time, I guess that would then create a need for perhaps some medicine that is just for women's bodies, like ambient for women, which sounds horrible. Um, <laughs> so I guess my point is, I mean, and that doesn't just go Okay, so for you're worried about it engendering a gender binary. Basically. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, so it's a valid point. I agree, ambient for women sounds... Really dreadful, actually. Um, but, it, I mean, I'm sure there are different ways around that. You could just say for, you know, you just have Ambien and then have, you know, men take this dosage and women take this dosage, which is what's happening at, at the moment. Um, I, I think, to be honest, that's only really a problem if you believe that because you have a certain set of genitals, you must therefore behave in a certain way. Um, and... For, for me, you know, that's, that's something that, that feminism is fighting against, and I don't think that we have to sort of f forego, uh, you know, medicine that's going to help us in order to try and fight back against sexism. I, I don't really see it as that much of a problem. I think it's just about making the argument that just because, you know, I was born, uh, well, with a vagina... Uh, that I therefore have to behave in a certain way or I can't do, can't do certain things. So just because I metabolise Ambien half as slowly as men, it doesn't mean that I can't do maths. I mean, I can't do maths, but that's a totally different thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the first question, you know, I completely agree with you. So many of the systems that we have in place are, are entrenching sexism and, and racism and all the other oppressions that we have in the world. I suppose the way I look at it is that you can't really start... I mean, unless we're going to have, like, a bloody revolution, um, which 
I'm not seeing happening any time soon. This is something that we can do in the meantime. And I think that when you get more women in positions of authority and more women in positions where they can look at the way in which we structure society, where they can look at, um, for example, selection procedures or um, uh, what policies we want to pass in Parliament, all that kind of thing, my hope is that that will enable us, enable us to change the systems as well as just having you know, women up there who, uh, who are just sort of fitting in with and profiting from the system as it stands at the moment. Um, I just want to give an example of this that I find, I find quite interesting. Um, so it was actually from um, Sheryl Sandberg's book, Lean In, which has been, I think, criticised for exactly that, that it's just about helping women to, to get to the corporate top and not to try and change it. But there was something she said in it that I thought was very interesting, which was... Um, so she, got, she was pregnant... And uh, she uh, was finding it really difficult to walk across the car park to get to her work. Um, and so she was in a senior enough position to go to her bosses and say, uh, we need pregnancy parking. And they said, oh, you know what, we hadn't even thought of that. You're absolutely right. Um, and she sort of says she felt ashamed that she hadn't thought of it either. But I think, A, that's very illustrative of how perspective matters, you know, it didn't occur to her because she hadn't been pregnant. It doesn't occur to men, not because they're evil, sexist assholes, but because they... They are, but also... <laughs> yeah, you miss Andrew. Um, no, I love men. I really love men. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, moving swiftly on. Um, yeah, so uh, she... Uh, I completely forgot what I'm saying now. I'm just thinking about men. <laughs> men haven't been pregnant, yeah. Um, so, no, but the other, the other thing that I think is really important is that I strongly suspect I don't agree with Sheryl Sandberg's politics. I don't think we would agree on many things. However, if I were a woman working at her company and I got pregnant, I would still benefit from that pregnancy parking that she's put in. Um, so I think, it's, I think it's really important to maintain an idea on the, a, a, a grasp of the bigger picture, what we're really trying to achieve, the huge revolution that we're trying to achieve. But I think it's also good and acceptable um, at the same time to try and make these small steps that will make women's lives better and hopefully increase female representation. And I feel like... I'm hoping it's going to be a thing that sort of snowballs. You get more women at the top, more changes start happening, more women get there, um, and eventually, hopefully, society will be completely unrecognisable. Excellent. OK, so we've got a lady at the back in the scarf and a lady in a light blue top on this side. Have we got any other questions? I've got one, two at the top, actually, two people waving frantically on either side there. So I'll go people at the bottom first and then people at the top. OK, lady in the scarf first. Um, thank you very much for your talk. Um, I kind of have two questions, but they're both really quick. Uh, firstly, do you personally yourself find it difficult not to be sexist against men? Um, and do you have any tips for engaging men more actively in feminist activism without threatening them in doing so? Okay. Good questions. Lady in the light blue top. Um, you mentioned that there were no women in the curriculum for Key Stage 2 history. Oh, I'm here. <laughs> um, and Key Stage 3, there are only four women. Is there a kind of um, you know, protest or fight against this and kind of what's happening in schools? Okay. Good questions. Okay, lady at the top in the coat, yes. Th thanks a lot. Um, I was just interested to hear Caroline's view on quotas because um, often comes up in conversation a lot of women don't want to get help they want to get their own merit but in order to accelerate things and get where we want to get surely that's the only way forward mm -hmm. okay good question and then lady of the cream top thanks hi yeah um i wanted to ask because you're talking about how you think we need to redefine masculinity and do you think there needs to be any focus on men's issues to do that or do you think that they're overrepresented anyway 
Can you define men's issues for me? Um, so I guess domestic violence against men, um, the idea that men need to be strong and powerful and how that could sort of damage their, um, their sort of sense of themselves. Okay. Um, much to go for first. I'm going to go for the men's the men questions first um, because there were two of them and they were kind of similar. Although, oh yeah, wait, were there two men questions? Oh yeah, tips for engaging men. Sorry. Um, so I think those two questions kind of come together. Um, I I I think that it would be I think that it's a mistake to think of it as men's issues and women's issues and that they're this completely separate thing because it's on a continuum and it's on a spectrum and it's part of a black and white, you know, good, bad, uh, emotional, rational, all these kinds of, of, of opposites. Um, and so inevitably, if you want to challenge one, you kind of have to challenge the other. Um, I think what feminism has been really good at doing so far has been saying women can do whatever men can do. Uh, and obviously that's still is an ongoing battle, but that's, I think, something that we've done far better at than, what we've, than we've been able to rehabilitate what has traditionally been ascribed to the feminine. Um, so that's things like um, emotions being seen as a bad thing, as a feminine thing and therefore a bad thing, uh, women being seen as irrational when, in fact, all humans are irrational. Um, uh, you know, the idea that, that pink, for example, is a bad colour, um, the idea that women are trivial, um, all, these, all these sort of aspects of, of femininity, you know, wanting to, to look nice, for example, as if men don't want to look nice, you know, all these aspects that are ascribed to femininity are seen as bad. Um, and I think a huge and important way of changing masculinity is to rehabilitate these things that we traditionally think of as feminine and therefore bad. So explaining so having a society where having emotions is not seen as a bad thing you know that enables men to be able to have emotions so it's kind of killing two birds with one stone it's creating a nicer society um where people don't have to sort of feel like they have to be psychopaths which i think ultimately is that you know the ideal of man um ultimately if any man fits into it he would kind of be a psychopath you know he's like an automaton robot with no emotions and you know just wants to smash things i just i don't know who would want to be that i don't think most men do want to be that. Um, so I kind of, I, I feel like there's, we don't need to worry too much about are we focusing on, on men's things. I think that it's, it's all part of the same culture because what we're actually trying to do here is change gender so that you don't have to behave a certain way just because you happen to be born a particular sex. Um, so, yeah, tips for engaging men is, is exactly that, to sort of demonstrate how this isn't a sort of anti-man thing and how this is a movement that is attempting to liberate both men and women from these shackles of a completely enforced gender binary. Um, do I find it difficult not to be sexist to men? I feel like I've kind of misrepresented myself here. Uh, let me stress again. I love men. Uh, <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I don't really think that... I, I suppose it depends how you... Uh, you, you define the term sexist. Um, I think that I can probably react to men in a prejudiced way, although I try, try not to. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I imagine that I probably have been short with men when I shouldn't have been because it's the umpteenth man asking me the same stupid question. And I'm sure he means it in a totally not annoying way. But, you know, it's been a long day and I've just run out of patience. So, yeah, inevitably that kind of thing will happen. Um, but uh, I, think, I think it's quite important to maintain a hold on 
words like sexism as being talking about structural oppression. Um, and sexism, therefore, can't really be directed at men in the same way as it's directed at women, because women are the ones who are... You know, it's not like men come out of sexism without any battered, battered bruised um, psychologies, but nevertheless, they, are, they do end up kind of being on top. Um, they might be mentally scarred from being on top, but they do end up being on top, and they're not the ones who are being raped, and they're not the ones who are being underpaid, and they're not the ones who are suffering from all these things that women are suffering from. They're, not, you know, they're the ones who are default humanity. Um, so for me, I, I don't think that it really makes sense to talk about being sexist towards men. However, if you mean uh, not always giving men the benefit of the doubt, I'm sure I'm, I'm guilty of that because I'm not a saint uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Um, key stage, yeah, so schools. Um, I have to admit I'm not hugely up on what's going on in schools. I do know that there is a campaign um, to address the curriculum of which this is part of what they're talking about but I can't remember the name of the campaign. I'm really sorry, but I'm sure if you Google it, you'll be able to find something. Uh, quotas? Yeah, quotas are a really difficult one. Um, I don't think they're the ideal solution. If someone could come up with a better one, I'd be all for it. I think it would be great if we could find another way of doing this. But the reality is people do hire in their own image, and there's so much evidence of the way in which women are discriminated against um, in, 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 uh, in, the, in professional careers. So... For example, I mean, I'm sure you've, or a lot of you will have heard about um, the various tests that they've done. It always seems to be science jobs, um, and they send off CVs uh, that are exactly the same. One has a male name, one has a female name, uh, and the male name is much more likely to get the job. They're more likely to be offered a higher salary. Um, there's also... A, 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 what I find really interesting, actually, is that... Um, so they, they, I think they started off with it as a test um, for orchestras that they uh, had everyone auditioned behind a screen so they couldn't tell the gender of the musician. Um, and uh, what's happened is that the number of women in orchestras has massively increased, particularly in the brass section, because it's taken away this idea of, you know, well, a woman can't, you know, hasn't got the lungs to... So when they're only listening and they can't tell that it's a woman playing the trumpet, whatever it is, suddenly women are being hired for brass sections. Um, so there's so much evidence that women are being discriminated against. Uh, and... I, don't, I can't think of any way other than quotas as a temporary measure just to get the numbers up, um, and then we can, we can get rid of it. And I think a really important way of countering this idea of you know, positive dis discrimination is, A, that's a terrible term, don't call it positive discrimination, call it levelling the playing field. Um, and also, I think that it's worth asking people, you know... Uh, I guess the best argument for me against the idea that we live in a meritocracy is Chris Grayling. Um, is that really the best that we can do? I really, really hope not. Uh, I can only imagine that the reason that our cabinet is so dominated by men who went to one school uh, is because of discrimination rather than because there's just some magical thing that happens to boys at Eton. I mean, maybe there is. I don't know. Let's not go there. Um, moving on. Next question. Excellent. Okay. Lady at the back, I'm also going to see up at the... I've got, two, I've got three up at the top. I don't think I've done very much at the top there, so I'm going to do three from the top. Um, and, where's, and the lady in the middle there. That's going to... Okay. And then you're all in the queue, okay, for the next time round. <laughs> Hiya, I'm Sue Tibbles. I've had a long career as a feminist campaigner, working in sport for a long time, actually, where issues of representation have been profound, although I think a lot has changed post-Olympics. 
But Karen, I wanted to ask you, and I'm sorry to pose such a big question to you, but if we're discussing representation, the area of representation that worries me most in terms of women, women's identity, women's safety, all kinds of things, is pornography, um, particularly uh, considering new media and technology and how that's affected your own experience as a campaigner. And I was just interested in your reflections on that large topic. Okay. Okay, so at the top there, yes, thank you. Hi. Um, I was just wondering, um, there still seems to be quite a lot of backlash against feminism, particularly from other women. Um, how would you say that we, need, we could change that, potentially? Okay. Hi. Um, I think you've touched on it a bit already, but I just wanted to clarify, um, not to box you up, but would you call yourself like a constructivist or a gender theorist in your approach to the relationship between sex and gender? Sorry. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> Sorry. I mean... I did, I did say, you, Caroline, she was allowed to pass on some questions. Okay. <laughs> do you want me to clarify that? Could you, yeah. Sorry. I mean, like, do you think that sex is responsible for our idea of gender or do you know, like, the ideas of Judith Butler, do you have any views more, like, to do with queer theory? Okay. Sorry. You can ignore that question if you want. <laughs> Hi, and then final question. Um, there was a recent study in an article that came out that sort of... Hi, up here. Hi. Yeah, yeah, no. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I'll just... I'll find you eventually. I'm up on the balcony. Okay. Hello. Yes. <laughs> Bright and white. Um, so there was a recent study in an article that came out showing that men often wanted very strong traits that were identified with feminism present in their daughters, but they also identified that they didn't want those strong and similar traits to be present in their wives. Uh, this is not surprising to me. No, it's not, but I'd be interested in hearing your views on does that signal sort of a shift change in representation of men see the future, that they see the current present they live in, and they see what their daughters have to go up against in society against men that might be similar to themselves, so they want to instill traits, or does it have something to do with in, an increase in representation or a viewpoint of the millennial generation or previous generations, and I'd be interested to hear your views on that. Okay. okay. I think we're going to stop there. I do have two at the front, and you'll be first next time round, okay? So I'm just, I think there's, there's a fair amount for you, for Caroline, to, uh, to take on there. Listen, I'm really sorry I've thought about this question. I, I just, I still don't really understand what you're asking me, so I'm going to have to, to uh, not answer that one. Um, I I don't think sex is responsible for gender, um, but I'm not sure if that's... Like, I think that it's not... I think gender is a social system, but I don't know if that's what you're asking me. But if that's what you're asking me, then I think gender is a social system that's imposed on people. Um, uh, what was another question? Feminism, backlash, how to change the backlash. Right, um, yeah, so... I think I'm uniquely positioned to answer this question because I was one of those terrible women. Uh, and I changed. Look at me. Uh, so, I, you know, I like, to, I like to present myself as a beacon of hope. Um, <laughs> I, I think, and I think what it is is, you know, finding whatever that thing is that enables whoever it is you're dealing with to have a light bulb moment and say, oh, yes, I get it. This is, this is what I mean. So I think it's really about having... I mean, I was lucky that I happened to read a book that, you know, that did it for me, Feminism and Linguistic Theory. Um, but I, you know, I think that it's about having conversations with women who don't understand feminism and 
talking to them about their lives because inevitably they will have experienced oppression. They will have experienced that fear of walking home at night in the dark. Um, and in fact, I was having a conversation with someone on Twitter today about uh, how when we were at university, uh, we just used to get groped all the time when we went out. And it never even occurred to me that this didn't have to happen. It never occurred to me to question it even. That was just a really horrible part of going out. Um, and if someone had come to me at that point and said, you know, feminism says that you can just go out and you don't have to be groped, um, that would have been a way of introducing me to feminism. So I think it's about finding what, whatever it is in a woman's life that she hasn't realised doesn't have to be that way. Um, but having said that, you know, I think that being a public feminist, standing up and saying, oh, I'm a feminist, I want to argue for, I want to push for the rights of women, you know, it's still a scary and difficult thing to do because we do live in a sexist society. And it's much, much easier to be that girl that I was when I was a teenager and in my early 20s who says, um, well, I'm not like women. Women are just a bit crap. I'm going to, you know, you're right when you say these things about women. But I, you know, don't make me join that bus. I want to be on your bus and I'm going to be one of the guys. And, and you know, you get applauded for for that, you know, and it's very nice, you know, you get told, oh, you're not like other girls, and you, you know, you're not mad and crazy and emotional, I'm like, yeah, I'm not, I'm great, you know. Um, so that's very seductive. Um, so I don't think we can blame women too much for, for doing that. Um, it is obviously frustrating, and it's upsetting, um, but I think also it's understandable, uh, and I, I think we need to, to bear that in mind, and try to have a little bit of patience with women who don't dare to cross that barrier, and to to say, actually, no woman is this 2D stereotype. Um, so, uh, yes, that's, that's my answer to that question. Uh, uh, oh, yeah, the daughters and the wives thing. Um, I mean, I, I'm not sure that this is necessarily... It would be interesting to know if, if this test had ever been done before, because, I mean, it makes me think a little bit of those, like... Uh, funny t-shirts that dads wear you must have seen it's like a, a meme online this guy this big guy wearing this t-shirt of 10 rules if you date my daughter um, and you know we have this idea of these overprotective dads being like I know what guys are like they're douches I was a guy um, and you know oh, don't, don't you come near my daughter so I think that that's I'm not sure how much that's progress um, I, I, I do think that if... I mean, I, I think it's great that they're encouraging girls to be like that, and I hope that it makes a difference, and I hope that, you know, the future generation of boys grow up with girls who are behaving in a different way and who aren't being told to shut up and aren't being told that they have to behave in this certain feminine, submissive way, um, although I've yet to see evidence of that happening. Um, uh, so, yeah, I, I, I'm not really sure what that means other than uh, men have always been protective of their daughters. Um, porn. That's a really mean question. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on porn, although I did just write an article about it today. Um, uh, so there's this new uh, uh, play that is coming out called We Want You to Watch, which is at the National Theatre, and it's by um, this uh, young female company called Rash Dash. And what I found very interesting about... Uh, so the play is basically about... It's about extreme internet porn and it's uh, about these two women and how they sort of struggle with articulating what it is, what their problem is with it. And I found that approach really, really interesting, this idea that it's so hard to explain exactly what the problem is with, with porn because so often it's not 
even necessarily about the acts that are being done. It's the way in which they're done, the, the position from which they're presented, uh, the way in which the women are denied a subjectivity. I mean, that's, that's really the problem as far as I can see it. And, and to me, the denying of a woman's subjectivity replicates what happens to a woman in a sexual assault. And I say that because when I've been sexually assaulted, that was what really, really stuck with me and really traumatised me. It wasn't so much what was done to me, it was seeing myself as he saw me, which was as not a human being worthy of respect, not a human being worthy of caring whether or not I wanted him to do what he was doing to me. And I clearly didn't, because I said no. Um, so I, for, for me, it's, it's that, but I think it's very, very difficult to be able to to put that into words, and I, I think you should all go and see this play because I think it's going to be brilliant. Um, and I, I think it's a, a really innovative and interesting way of trying to explain what the problem is because you can't... It's very, very difficult to start making hard and fast rules, I think, about what porn is acceptable and what isn't, what acts are acceptable, what aren't, because at that point you just get into so, so many difficulties, and I think that's been made very clear by the recent porn laws which came in... Um, which have really odd rules, like... Um, so you can have uh, a guy violently penetrating a woman's mouth, but you can't have a woman sitting on a guy's face to receive oral sex. Um, you can have male ejaculation, a man can come on a woman's face, but uh, you can't show female ejaculation. Um, I don't know about you, but those, th those distinctions seem a little bit suspect to me. Uh, and... Uh, and actually, they are, they are based on some, on I think the 1950s obscenity law, when uh, women were even less allowed to be sexual beings than they are now. Um, so this isn't, I, I don't know, I don't really have the answer to porn. I think it's a debate that we need to be having, um, and it's one that we're not really having, and I think it's difficult to have for the reasons that, that I said, and also because people, I think, struggle to, to find a way to I express it in a world which says that if you object to anything, you're a prude, rather than actually you want to have a better representation of sex. In fact, one of the women that I interviewed for the article is a female pornographer, and uh, she's a feminist pornographer, and she, um, her solution to it is that more feminist porn needs to be created. And I have to say, you know, that's not, it's not happening to the extent that it needs to happen at the moment. The market's completely flooded with this very single type of misogynistic porn. Um, but I think that's realistically the only way we're going to be able to do it. I don't think, being able to, I don't think we're ever going to be able to censor our way out of misogyny. Um, and I think, in fact, if the, the rape and death threats that I got showed anything, um, it's that you can't, you can't censor people's thoughts. You have to change the way they think. You have to change what's happening. Because I think a lot of people were so shocked by what was sent to me because they thought we'd moved on from that. They thought that this wasn't being thought anymore. And actually, it was being thought. It's just that no one felt able to say it. Um, and I think that that really strongly shows the problem with just censoring something rather than with providing an alternative and engaging with it. OK, excellent. Thank you. So I've got two questions hanging over from last time, which is the lady in the middle there, lady with the scarf, and a gentleman at the front here, the glasses, and a lady at the back with a stripy top. OK, and then, I'm, then I think that's our last, our last call. Uh, so let's start off here. Thank you. Hi there. Um, I worked at um, an investment bank not very far away from here and uh, worked on a sort of 50-50 floor of um, males and females, but predominantly females were in support roles. And people would frequently come up to ask me whether I could, you know, arrange an appointment for the guy that was sitting next to me. And I said, well, when he gets back, I'm sure you can arrange it. 
with him. Um, but also in my role, people would come around and kind of introduce me to new members of their teams. And when one day they brought a man around, I made the mistake of thinking that he was actually a salesperson and he wasn't, he was in a support role. And so I was kind of really angry with myself and sort of thought, you know, really gave myself a ticking off and kind of going, you know, I've made that mistake. I've made that prejudice myself. I've assumed that because he's a man, he's in a kind of more important role. And my question is, uh, do you think we're our own worst enemies? Okay, thank you. Lady here. Hi, um, my name is Sophia and I'm a journalist, or I'm trying to be one. And my question is about the fact that we talk a lot about cultural differences and how there is a clash of civilizations, yet sexism seems to be a pretty worldwide global phenomenon. And I was wondering if you have any thoughts on why there is. Is there some sort of like big bang of sexism that happened and it occurred in human history? Or whether, and, and how, you know, how can you provide a solution to something that is a global phenomenon? Thank you. Okay, thank you. There's a gentleman at the front here in the glasses. Hi there. Um, thank you for a great talk. Um, when we're talking about um, increasing the representation of women in organisations, we're essentially having to um, persuade the senior leadership of those organisations that it's important. Uh, if they aren't buying the kind of blatantly obvious to me <laughs> social justice arguments, then what other um, what are the other best arguments you think we have? Thank you. A lady at the back. It's just a quick one about the word feminism, which is when I tend to get the most pushback talking about feminism with whoever I'm talking about. Have you found a way around that, or do you think it's just got to be reclaimed and we've got to power on with it? Okay. Uh, I'll start with that question. Um, I think that whatever we call feminism, until we no longer need feminism, there's going to be pushback against that name. Um, the reason there's pushback is because of sexism. Um, and so the only, there isn't really a, a way around that. Again, until sexism is defeated, I'm afraid, um, you're going to carry on having people complaining about it. Um, and, I, and I think that it is a really important word, actually, because it not only names this movement, but it also names the problem that we're trying to deal with, which is that women are oppressed and that we want to liberate women. And I think it's really important that that's contained within the name of the movement to keep our minds focused on what we're trying to achieve here. Um, so other ways of convincing people who aren't convinced by social justice arguments. Um, well, uh, <laughs> I mean, I think there's always, there's always that argument about, you know, about perspective um, and the different perspective that someone who's had a different life experience can bring. So I think a very interesting example of this is Procter & Gamble, who uh, did actually massively increase their female representation because they were selling to women. Um, and so they saw the, the importance of having people who were designing the products and who were trying to sell the products to understand the market that they were trying to, trying to sell to. Um, you know, I think a very interesting example of how, how perspective can kind of... If you only have, have men designing an app, for example, so um, the, the Apple Health app didn't contain uh, an option for um, tracking your cycle. Um, or uh, there was a, a roboticist that I, I interviewed who uh, was talking about this, um, this, this humanoid robot that this team, all-male team, had made, and they asked her to, to come over and, and, 
and say hello to it because it was a robot that was meant to come over and shake your hand. Um, but because they were all guys and they were quite big, um, they didn't realise that the robot they'd made was bloody terrifying. So it, like, <laughs> barrelled towards her. She's, you know, this sort of missile seeking her hand. And she was, you know, she shrieked and, and stood back. Um, and obviously it's not the end of the world, but it does sort of, again, show the importance of, of perspective. You know, this isn't, again, this is, again, not that these men were deliberately trying to scare poor little women with their scary robots. Um, I think they wanted women to like their robots. Um, but, but, yeah, they, they, they hadn't managed, managed to do it. Um, to stick with robots for a second, what, I, I think they're a very, very interesting and an, an important topic to, to discuss because robots are only going to become more important um, in, in our society. And they are a very, very clear example of how perspective drives what we create. Um, and so the robots that we create are the, the things that we... They're trying to solve the problems that we think humanity most needs to solve. And at the moment, it seems that we think the most pressing things facing humanity are um, being able to kill people, so that's drones, and uh, make more money more quickly, so that's algorithms in the city. Um, and what uh, this roboticist who I interviewed was talking about was, uh, you know, women still do the vast majority of the unpaid care work in, in the world, um, including when they, they are the, the main earner in the household, actually. So this is including women who are um, being pioneers in their fields, they're still coming home and, you know, putting on the wash and feeding the kids and wiping bottoms and whatever else it is that mothers do. Um, so, you know, she was making the point that if there were more, more women designing robots, isn't there a chance that we might have more robots that sort of helped you around the home than we currently, than we currently do, um, and that they would be more advanced than, than they are? Um, and women would buy those robots. So what I'm trying to say here in this long rant about perspective is that I think that's the argument that you make, that uh, men don't don't live really in exactly the same world as women do because they have different things that they do, they have different experiences, they're brought up in a different way, they're expected to behave in a different way, they're expected to do different tasks, and therefore they're going to have certain different needs. Um, and I don't want to scare the questioner over there who is worried about me further entrenching the gender binary. Um, that's not what I mean. I don't mean that women were born to clean, I just mean that that's the way the world is at the moment. Um, and, uh, and so I, I think that would happen. And to conclude, Peggy from Mad Men, I think, is a really interesting example of this. They get her in to sell lipstick to women, and she does very, very well at it. Um, OK, investment 50-50 support role. Right. No, I don't think we are our, our own worst enemies. Uh, I mean, or maybe we are. Who knows? Um, I... <laughs> Sorry, I'm meant to be answering the question. I know. I definitely know the answer to this. Um, I... <sighs> Of course, women are sexist. You know, we're brought up in the same society men are brought up in. There's, it, we, there's just no reason for us not to be sexist. We have the same assumptions, the, the same thoughts. We think the same type of man is an aspirational man. Um, and I think it's very difficult to to get rid of that from within yourself. I mean, to to use me as an example of how I'm a terrible feminist. You know, like. Uh, I get rid of my body hair. And if I were a really dedicated feminist, I would not do that. Um, but I live in a society that has culturally conditioned me to think it looks horrible, and I don't like it on myself. And, uh, and in fact, I, I rather embarrassingly once was giving a talk, and uh, I hadn't shaved my legs for a few days, and I was wearing a dress. And uh, I was... And the front row was, like, here. And I just kept thinking, kind of like the stereotype threat, the women taking the mass tests, rather than concentrating on the answers to the panel, I was thinking, God, I wonder if the front row can see my legs. I'm just 
pull my skirt down a bit. Um, so I think it's unrealistic to expect women to not have the same sexist prejudices as the rest of us. So maybe we are our own worst enemies, but we should cut ourselves a break. Um, and yeah, sexism is a global phenomenon. Yeah, well, that's, I mean, that's another really big reason why I wrote the book and I wanted to make it a global book, um, because I really wanted to highlight how, although uh, sexism and misogyny might manifest itself differently or to different extremes in different countries, um, the underlying philosophy is the same everywhere. Um, it's all about this idea that women are lesser and subservient and unable to, to make rational decisions and unable to uh, behave in the superior way that men can. Um, where it comes from, I mean, people have written many books about this. <laughs> I think I can't really answer that in a, in a, in a short question. Um, I... <sighs> I think it's. I mean, it's just been going. It's been going on for millennia. And I suppose the reason it's spread around the world is because, is maybe something to do with migration. I'm not a historian. Uh, this is a terrible question to to end on. I should have done this one first and fluffed it. I don't know the answer. I'm sorry. <laughs> I think a good point to end on is, is by the book. Okay. No, because it does have fantastic stories in it. Um, I think we should thank Caroline for a just wonderful, wonderful um, lecture this evening and talk this evening. Um, and before you show your appreciation by clapping, uh, you, um, I can also remind you that you can also show your appreciation by buying. Okay? <laughs> so the book is to sell outside, and Caroline will be here uh, to do signings as well if you would like. But now, please show a huge appreciation for Caroline for giving us such a fantastic talk. <laughs>